Turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 10, and verse 9. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So let's just pick up a little bit of context here. Uh, Paul obviously writes to Roman Christians here. He tells them he's declaring the gospel to them. He's already declared the gospel we saw from chapter 3, 4, 5, um, 6 and 7, or the parenthesis there. Chapter 8 deals with the ministry of the Spirit. Chapter 9, he starts to deal with the question of the Jew. What about the Jew now, Paul? You say, man, is, uh, if he's in Christ, he's loved, and nothing can separate him from that love. But the Jews were being separated from the covenant. At least that's what it seemed, right? And he's proven that the, the Jews were the covenant breakers, that God didn't break the covenant, that the Jews actually were the ones that broke the covenant. Um, they went after false gods, so he's, he's proven that to us and he's shown that just because somebody was born of Abraham did not mean that they were a Jew. Uh, and he gave us the twins and a couple other examples. And he showed us Moses and, and Pharaoh. Uh, that Moses received mercy, Pharaoh didn't. Pharaoh was hardened. Where Moses didn't deserve mercy either. And then he takes it to the to the Gentiles, closing up chapter nine, and we'll see later on he starts to deal with the Gentiles being grafted into that to that olive tree. Um, we saw starting in chapter ten that that Christ was the end of the law for righteousness. That the Jews were seeking to establish their own righteousness by by practicing the law, and you don't earn righteousness that way. And it said they, they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And their zeal for God was looking to the law. They had all they had all the oracles of God, and they would they would protect those things, but they did not know God. And I don't want to get into right to the verses right before here because I got, actually got it in a little intro in my notes here. So right before we jump in, I obviously I have my three points. Um, there's no good alliteration or anything for the points, and they're pretty simple. It's confession, salvation, and lordship. So the first point here is the confession. But for the intro, I want to say, let us remember that these verses, though they are very popular, right, and often just quoted as though they're not part of the whole, they're connected with what he previously said. So it's not just these two verses. We can't take these two verses out and just separate it from the context, which is what happens. And we, we even do it as Bible-believing, Reformed Christians, right? We'll quote these verses to people. But, but it's part of the, the, what he previously said. It's part of the context. And remember what he just said. He said, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Then he says, you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart. You see the connection there? So it's connected to what he previously said. He says that the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth. So it's connected to what he just said. It's in direct connection to the previous verse. And it's in direct 
connection with our greater context. Remember that Paul was showing that God is a covenant-keeping God. And he just before this showed how the Jews were seeking righteousness by the law, but Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So the response to the law is not, I need to work harder so I can earn righteousness. It's the, it's the law kills. The law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And it's that I can't keep the law, and therefore I need someone who has. And we have one. Who is the end of the law for righteousness. So the answer is to believe upon Him. That's what Paul's been dealing, displaying to us. And then he says that is near to you. The Gospel is near to you. It's already in your mouth and heart. And what was it that was in their mouth and hearts? The word of faith is what they were preaching. The Gospel. So that's the intro there. But look at verse 9. It says, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. This is the preaching. This is the preaching. It says the word of faith that you've been preaching, this is it. So let's deal with that first, that word confess here, because I know that's the, that's the elephant in the room. So the question is, do I verbally have to say something in order to be saved? I didn't even think about this as any of my notes. What about mute? Must I confess all my sins in order to be saved? I mean, I've been taught that before. I'm sure you have too. You need to confess your sins or you won't be saved. But let me demonstrate something about this real quick. When the Lord first saved me, I didn't even know all of my sins. I was doing sins that I didn't even know were wrong. And I'm sure you could say the same thing. The years that you've grown in, in Christ, you look back and you think, I can't believe I was doing that. Let me add to this as well. Would you say believing or preaching false doctrine is sin? I do. And I'd venture to say, even that within our small group here, many of us have come to, from a place where we believed all kinds of false doctrine. We probably believed all kinds of false doctrine, and God has grown us out of that. But the false doctrine in itself is not truth. It's a lie. Therefore, it is sin. So this can't mean that we have to confess all of our sins to be saved. And I know that's what some people say. But and they actually use this verse right here when you know when the evangelist goes and he, and he tries to uh, convert somebody, confess all your sins. That's not even what the verse says, though. It says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. That's what the text actually says, and I'll get into that later. It, so it's about confessing Christ, not sin. So the question we must answer is, is it necessary for some to speak something in order to be saved or justified? And I think as Protestants, we should all agree that this can't be the case. We hold to a doctrine called sola fide, right? Y'all know that term? Sola fide. By faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. Not by saying something. Not by doing something. Now I know how big this verse is used by so-called evangelists to declare someone is saved. They say, confess that Jesus is Lord, therefore you are saved. Right? I'm sorry you saw the televangelists on television. Just confess that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. 
and then they confess and then they say they're saved. But then that person is never seen within the church again, and they know nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ. So it can't simply mean to mouth the words, Lord Jesus. It's not just saying you mouth the words, Lord Jesus, and therefore you're saved, because heretics do that. If I may say that the name Jesus is one of the greatest idols in our world today. There's more people that worship a false Jesus than any other false god. He's not the Jesus defined by Scripture, but He goes by the same name. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses, they worship a false Jesus. Mormons, they worship a false Jesus. Those within a lot of the evangelical church worship a false Jesus. But they all, guess what they all do? They all confess Jesus is Lord. Does that mean that they're saved? They confess that Jesus is Lord. Does that mean that they're saved? No, it does not. The word for confess doesn't mean simply saying something. It doesn't mean that you just said something. It, it's actually it's the word tamalagia, which is actually a compound word. And, and we're familiar with little, probably both, both words, but hama or homo, which means same, right? And then logos, which is the word. So it's saying the same word. It's just the same word. You, you're saying the same thing. It's, it's the same word. So uh, one of the Greek dictionaries, well, a couple of them actually said, it's the same, saying the same thing as another, or to agree, or this is the good one right here, to covenant. It's to covenant. That's what a covenant is, right? Y'all know the... Uh, Catechism, what is a covenant? An agreement between two or more persons, right? That's what a covenant is. That's what this is saying. It's saying the same thing. It's an agreement between two or more persons. It's a covenant. It's an agreement with God on the Lord Jesus. That's what it is saying. Which means we can't have a fake Jesus. Like the one on the Chosen series that everybody seems to love. We can't have a Jesus who is the spirit brother of Lucifer. We can't have a Jesus who is merely a man. We can't have a Jesus who can't keep His people. We can't have a Jesus who is this weak, beggarly, false, wimpy God that can't do anything to save His people. We must be in agreement with Scripture on the person and work of Christ. As defined by Scripture as a whole. We would agree with God with what He says about Jesus, not what we want Him to say about Jesus. Not some twisted perversion of Jesus, but the real historical God-man, Jesus Christ. We're in agreement with God on this. That's what it means to confess. And this will come out of our mouths, though, at some point, right? I mean, at baptism itself, we confess Jesus publicly, do we not? Which really is one of the first things we do as believers. You believe, you baptize publicly. We confess Christ. Now let me bring something else up out of here from the historical context. This here was in opposition to what was happening at Rome at the time of Paul's writing. In Rome, you had to confess Caesar as Lord. The Caesar was Nero. 
So in Rome, Nero was Lord. And you had to confess this. Now, now you could confess a plethora of other false gods too. You can have, remember it was 220 other false gods. You can have all those, but you still had to confess Caesar as Lord. You had to just, he was one more of the group of false gods that you had. Well, what's one thing as a Christian we cannot do when we confess Jesus as Lord? We don't confess any other Lords besides Jesus, right? I'm not, I will not confess another person. If they started coming around and saying, you must confess that Biden is Lord, I will not confess it. So this put the early Roman Christians in quite a little conundrum, right? They cannot confess Caesar as Lord anymore because they know, they agree, they are in a covenant with the one true Lord. Just think, this is basic, fundamental Christianity. This goes all the way back to one of the most basic confessions by the church. Deuteronomy 6.4, you all heard of the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one Lord, and it's Yahweh. Or as the church of Ephesus professed, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord. We have one Lord and it's not Caesar. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So this they must confess. And we know that they were because of the previous verse in, Rome, in Romans, right? It's already in their mouth and hearts. What we saw last week. It was already in their mouth and hearts. They were already confessing it. However, they were going out to preach this to a people that confessed Caesar as Lord. Their neighbor professes Caesar as Lord. I cannot profess Caesar as Lord, but I must go and tell this person about Jesus, that He is Lord. And we know from history that if you denied that Caesar was Lord, you died. But this was then and has always been the mission of the church. To preach to people, to confess, agree, to covenant with God through the Lord Jesus even if that means your life. This is what it means to confess with your mouth. And Jesus actually had some words to say about this as well. I don't want to spend a bunch of time expounding on them, but I, they definitely go with this, and I want us to see it. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. In verse 32. Matthew 10.32 says, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. The truth is, Christians will confess him before men. We will. It's not a question. It will happen. Just like it wasn't a question to Paul to the Romans there. They were doing it. They were already doing it. We will do it. This is not saying if you're a Christian and you deny Him, you're going to hell. We know of one that clearly denied Him, right? After Jesus said this. Jesus said this to, to His disciples, yet one of His disciples denied Him. Three times. 
Peter didn't lose his salvation when he did it either. It doesn't mean that we do it perfectly and every single time. But we do confess Him before men. It's not a question, it's a fact. So this is something that Christians do. It's not something that you must do to become a Christian. When God regenerates you, gives you a new heart, gives you faith and repentance, you confess Christ. You, you are in covenant with Him. You agree with God on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you take that agreement with God and you go out and tell others about it. So let's move on in our text here. That was a confession, the first point. The second point is salvation. So, to confess is to agree, to agree with God, to covenant with God. But how does this come about? It comes about through belief. Now you might argue that in verse 9, the order is confession first, and then belief, right? But then the order in verse 10 is belief first, then confession. Now, I haven't dealt with this so much from the teaching perspective, but this I believe to be a chiasm here, which is just, if you took verse 9 and 10 and you took the first line of verse 9 and it goes with the last line of verse 10, and the second line of verse 9 goes with the first line of verse 10. So they, so they, they, go, they go together that way. It's not necessarily here to give us an order of salvation, which is actually what I'll probably, I think I'm going to start teaching on Wednesday nights is the order of salutis, the order of salvation. So let me just say, even logically speaking, belief must come before confession, right? Just logically, without even going to the text, we, we would logically be able to make that argument out that the text also clearly teaches us that. But the reason I say logically is because What's one of the basic, the most basic fundamental definitions of the word pestuo? You know the word pestuo, which translated believes? One of the most basic fundamental definitions of it is to be persuaded. So it's to be persuaded. So you don't agree with or come in covenant with something you have not been persuaded of. You must be persuaded of, or another definition is place a confidence in the covenant before you confess the covenant. You wouldn't confess a covenant with something that you didn't believe. Now we know, obviously, the Bible teaches this too. And we know that the Bible clearly teaches us that belief is the initial entrance into the kingdom, right? Let's see some of this. Turn with me to John chapter 3. John 3, 16. Y'all know that verse? <laughs> Watch a football game this year. You'll see it's up there somewhere. Probably. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever, whoever what? believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now look down at verse 36. Same chapter. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. 
But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you believe, you have eternal life. It's simple, and we know this. Paul has clearly told us this throughout the book of Romans too. So, to, so to say the opposite now, he's already taught us this in the book of Romans that that belief is what justifies us. Is what is how we, we enter into eternal life. You have passed from death unto life by belief. He's clearly taught us that in Romans. To say the opposite now would not only be odd, but it'd be contrary, and therefore not true. From his very thesis, remember our thesis statement in Romans 1, 16 and 17 of the book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. To Romans 5, 1 Remember, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. By faith. To this very chapter, in chapter 10 and verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So belief is our initial entrance into the kingdom. It's by grace we are saved through faith. And notice in our text here, uh, back in Romans 10, in verse 10 it says, For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. So it says, resulting in righteousness. The word here is often translated justified. Resulting in justification. It's the same thing. Being righteous is being just. Being just is being righteous. They're the same thing. The words translated justified sometimes and righteousness other times. But it's the same, the same thing. Same idea. In the courtroom of heaven, you've been declared just if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And you'll confess the Lord Jesus. Now it's interesting here that Paul uses the word justified for believe, but saved for confession. They're two different words. And I think it's actually two different ideas, though similar. By faith you are justified. This means that the moment you believe you are declared just in the courtroom of God, He sees you as just. Justified by faith alone. But what about confessing to be saved? Well, I think Paul means more than simple justification here. Notice in verse 9 of our chapter here, that if you confess with the Lord with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's future. You shall be saved. Not that you are saved, that you shall be saved. It's something that hasn't happened yet. What can Paul mean by that? Well, turn up to maybe one page, chapter 13 of Romans, verse 11. And this do, knowing the time that is already, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. 
How can salvation be nearer than when we believe? Aren't we saved the moment we believe? Well, salvation is used in more than one way in Scripture. It doesn't always mean justification. Salvation deals with more than an initial moment of salvation, but the whole of salvation. So we have been saved, and we will be saved. We have already been saved by the power and penalty of sin, but we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Or we can say it like this, so we are saved, justified, we are being saved through our perseverance, and we will be saved when we're glorified. But it's all salvation. So now let's bring this directly to these Roman Christians here. They are justified by faith, as Paul already declared to them, and they confess Christ already, but there is the idea that Caesar will kill them for it. They know this. I'm probably going to die by Caesar. So it's a comfort to know that even if Nero kills me for confessing Christ, I will be saved from this present world. I will be saved from the very presence of sin and death because Christ paid for them and I believe upon Him. This is a comfort for those persecuted for, our faith, for their faith. This should be a comfort for us even though we're not necessarily persecuted for our faith, but we're headed to the grave, right? All of us. None, nobody in here can say that's not my future home. I actually thought about saying that this morning as I was driving by a seminary, cemetery. Almost called a seminary. <laughs> Close to the same thing. Uh, but that's our future home. Right? You drive by it, look, that's where you want to be at 100 years from now. At least that's where your bones will be at. But I will be saved from the very presence of sin and death. And that is a comfort. That if you believe you are justified, and though you confess the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. And this is the message that they were preaching in Rome. The very place that was going to kill them. They were taking the Gospel. It was already in their mouths and hearts. And they were preaching it to pagan worshipers who would report them for confessing Jesus. We saw some of this in the past couple of years, right? Reporting people for having parties. They aren't six feet apart. They didn't have masks on. Imagine what was happening in Rome back then. You go to your neighbor and you, you tell them the gospel, what do they do? They go to the centurion and say, this guy over here won't confess Caesar as Lord. But they still did it. They were still out there preaching. But in the end, they would be saved. Now, I don't want us to miss this. This is the great subject of this portion of Scripture. Lordship. Jesus' Lordship. We, we, have, we have confession, we have salvation, now we have Jesus' Lordship. This is a, the third point here. This isn't about belief or confession. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about the Lord Jesus. That's the subject of this. That word of faith that Paul just mentioned, that word that is near to you, it's the Lagos, the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus. That's the great subject here. It's not the point to believing or confessing, it's the point to Jesus. Your believing and confessing should be pointing to Christ. 
not to your belief or confession. See, here's the thing that some get confused. Yes, we believe in sola fide. Yes, we believe by faith alone. But it's not our faith that saves us. That sounds almost like heresy, doesn't it? But it's not our faith that saves us. It's not our confession that saves us. It's the Lord Jesus who we believe that saves us. He is our Savior. Faith is not our Savior. He is the great subject here. I think in verse 10, it actually points to this as well. But I do believe our modern translations somewhat translate this wrong. Here's why. Believes and confesses in verse 10 are both passive verbs. So it's not about you being active in this. It is passive, I believe, because it points to Christ. So this is the way I think it would sound better translated, even though we don't really talk like this. For with the heart He is being trusted for salvation. And by the mouth He is being confessed for salvation. It's about Christ, not you. Not your actions, but on the person and work of Christ. That's where our faith and confession rest. It doesn't rest on our faith and confession, but on Christ. You see the difference? The difference is, it's not about having faith in faith or in confidence. It's about having faith in Christ. He's the subject. It's confessing and believing in the Lord Jesus and His perfect work. Now let me bring this out of two as well. Notice, in my translation it says, Jesus as Lord. To confess with the mouth, Jesus as Lord. It doesn't say that. I don't know if y'all have the same... Um, I'm using NASB. But as is italics. Because it's not actually there. You might say Jesus is Lord. Is should be in italics because it's not there either. So it's not about confessing that Jesus as Lord. It's just literally confessing Lord Jesus. The KJV actually translates it that way. So there, there is a difference here. It's not confessing that Jesus is Lord, but believing and confessing Jesus. He is Lord. He is Lord. It's not that you have to confess that He is Lord, because He is Lord. So it's not simply saying Jesus is Lord, but confessing Jesus. There is no Jesus who isn't Lord. Now I know there's some that say there are people that say I believe in Jesus as a Savior, but not as Lord. I've yet to run into that person. Maybe they exist, and maybe that's why the newer translation puts it confessing Jesus as Lord instead of just the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord, and anybody who believes confesses this. Now I've heard this topic be used to say, well, you say you believe in Jesus, but is, is He Lord of your life? By that, I mean, are you obeying Him? Is He Lord of all your life? To the people that ask that question, I also want to ask them, do you still sin? If you think believing Jesus as Lord means you must obey in all areas of your life or it's proof that you're not saved, you must be sinless then, right? And we know they're not. All of us. Believers struggle with sin. Does this mean we don't believe Jesus is Lord because we struggle with sin? Absolutely not. That's a far jump for one to make, right? 
He is Lord, even when I'm not acting like it. Even when I'm in the worst of sins, He is still Lord, and I still believe it. Even when I'm doing stupid stuff that I shouldn't have been doing, and you said, is Jesus Lord? Of course He's Lord. Why? Because it's who He is. I don't make Him Lord. I don't have Him as Lord one day and not the next. I don't have Him as a Savior from sin but not Lord of my life. These ideas don't really exist. If you believe on Him, He's your Lord. But like I said here, the language here is not confessing Him as Lord. It's simply confessing Him. The Lord Jesus. So please don't use the verse to manipulate people into obedience. Why do we obey? Out of love, not out of fear, right? You can't scare a professed Christian into obedience if they don't actually believe. I think a lot of people, I've heard a lot of preachers actually kind of talk like that. It's as though they're talking to unbelievers and trying to tell them, y'all, you're not acting good enough. You say you believe Jesus. Well, the, the problem is, neither are you, preacher. None of us are acting good enough, right? Unless we're acting perfect. The answer is not get to work, it's believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus. If they believe, they will obey. Right? God said it. He said, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. God said that about us. He will cause us to do it. You say a Christian is not obeying? Well, blame God then. You, ain't, you don't want to do that now, do you? Because Christians do obey. I don't need to put fear in you for you to obey. The very fact that the Lord Jesus stepped down out of heaven, fulfilled the law that you break, died for your sins, rose from the grave for your justification, and ascended to the right hand of the Father where He's making intercession for you right now. If that's not enough for you to obey, nothing in this world will make you obey. Seeing the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This here is the cause of our obedience. Believe that, and you will obey. God, through the Holy Spirit, causes you to look upon Christ and obey. He truly is Lord, and we believe it and confess it. Amen? Let's move on to our um, call to faith and repentance, our application. So to the one in here, as always, that does not know Christ. This Jesus, who is Lord, commands you to believe and repent today. This morning. He is the only way to God. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He completely obeyed the law that you continually break, died for sin, rose from the grave, and ascended to the throne. He is the only way to heaven. There aren't many ways to heaven. There's one way. Your good works won't get you there because you have none. And even if you, you did have good works, they would have to be perfect and you would have to also never have sinned in your whole life. And none of us in here could say that about ourselves for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. And by our sins, we have earned eternal death. Yet Jesus took that death for His people and rose from the grave defeating it. 
And I call to you this morning that person that does not know Christ is to believe and repent of your sins and be saved. To us believers here, this application was really hard to get out apart from preaching. Just saying, go preach, because that's kind of what it's doing. Our call to faith and repentance to believers here is we already are believing and confessing, right? It's already in our mouth and in our heart. That's what he says. We'll keep doing it. We are called believers because we believe and that belief continues into eternity. We, when I say believe, I don't mean like the world tells you to believe in Santa Claus. Right? Just believe like he's real. Believe that he's real. That's not what I mean. I mean trust him. Keep trusting him. Not just for your justification, but also for your sanctification. Right? We trust him through the whole process of salvation from our justification all the way to our glorification. Even when we fail Him, we still trust Him. We still rely on Him. We couldn't make it through this life without Him. Jesus said, "For without me you can do nothing. It's not that we just believed years ago and now we're saved and we just go about life. I, that doesn't happen with Christians. I've seen people say that that happens with Christians, but that's not what happens with I didn't get saved in 99 and all of a sudden, that's it. Glad I'm saved. And go about my life the same as it was before. That's not how Christianity works. Believe me, y'all didn't want to know me before 99. Might not want to know me right after 99 either. <laughs> I probably didn't want to know y'all either. Because y'all were going to church and I didn't want to before 99. But it's not that you're just justified the moment you believe and then 20 years later you're just doing the same old things. That nothing's changed. We continue to trust Him and rely on Him. What was the thought? Well, I already believed, so now I must just, just do good works, right? I already believed. I believed a long time ago. Now I just must do good works. That's not the Christian message. Though I know many th think so. It's keep believing and the good works we do are because we are trusting in Christ still. It's not moving on to the next thing. It's never moving past the Gospel. The Gospel isn't just the door and then we go in and we move on to the next thing. That's not how Christianity works. The Gospel is everything. Or better yet, Christ is everything, right? He is everything. Trusting Him is everything. We obey Him out of that belief, out of that trust. That's where our good works flow from. And we confess Him before men. Why? Because we trust Him. We believe Him. We know that we'll be hated of men, and yet we still confess Him before men. This is what Christians do. It's not that you must do this to prove that you're a Christian. It's that this is what you will do if you are a Christian. Now, like I've already mentioned, will you do this perfectly? I think not. If you can do anything perfectly, you might not need a Savior, right? However, as humans, do we do anything perfectly? I can't think of, I mean, I was a perfectionist growing up. 
God broke me about that because I can't do anything perfect. Even the same thing, I do the same things every single day. If I can do the same thing every single day, it's still never perfect. Which is very frustrating if you're a perfectionist. Because it must be perfect. So you're never happy. But we as humans do nothing perfect. We are a broken people. Remember Romans 9, a lump of clay. We're from the same fallen lump of clay. A vessel of mercy, a vessel of wrath, both from the same fallen lump of clay. Though we've been made new in Christ, we still have that old man that likes to show up, right? He's like that old friend that you don't like, you don't invite him to the parties anymore, but he continues to show up. There'll come a day, though, when that old man's completely gone. Praise God for that, right? So keep pressing on. Keep trusting Christ for everything. That's our last point in application here called a war. So now it's time to lace up the bootstraps, right? To gird up the loins of your mind, as Paul said. These men and women in Rome that Paul was addressing were taking the gospel message into a world that would kill them. Do you face that? I mean, if you go out here door to door and start sharing Christ with people, are you facing death daily? Not really. I mean, somebody could kill you for your faith, but they most likely go to prison. I say most likely because sometimes people get away with stuff. However, there could be somebody listening to this message on YouTube or on a podcast in a nation where they will actually die for their faith. It still happens today. It was years ago. I saw 435 people are killed every day for claiming the name of Christ. 435 people every day are killed for claiming the name of Christ. Now, mind you, some of those could be false. But it doesn't matter because it's not about the person. It's about the person of Christ that the world hates, right? There could be somebody out here, out there listening to this, that could die for your faith. You know what, though? It doesn't matter where you are or when you are. We as Christians have a mission, and that's to take the gospel out to the world. It's not, I believe, therefore I'm safe from going to hell, and now I go on with my life. It's, I believe, and therefore I want others to believe, not simply because you don't want others to go to hell, but because you know Christ is worthy to be worshipped by them as well. That's, that, I believe that should be the driving force of all missions. Is Christ's name is worthy to be sung by your lips. The gospel should be coming out of your lips, you pagan. You want Christ to be worshipped by everybody. So no matter where you are, you want this. And, and Christians actually do this, right? We do this. This is how Paul could say this. Remember, Paul is writing to Romans. He didn't hand deliver this message to them. This wasn't like a transcript of a sermon that he preached. He wrote a letter to Rome, and it was sent to them. And he could say to them, without even being there, that the Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, and that we are preaching it. He knew they were. It was in their mouth. And he knew they were because we already saw in chapter 1, and we'll see it again, I think, in chapter 16, that their faith was being spoken of throughout the whole world. Everybody knew it. 
Why? Because the Romans were zealous. They were taking the Gospel out. The Word was in their mouth and in their hearts. He knew that they were preaching. Why? Because that's what Christians do. This is why the world hates us. It's not because they hate good works, right? They don't hate the fact that we go to Africa and dig wells for people. They don't hate that at all. They love that. But they do hate it when you say, now repent and look to the Lord Jesus Christ because your works will never get you to heaven. You're headed to hell. And this water and this well won't save you. You're still going to die. Not as thirsty, but you're still going to die. That is what the world hates. We take the Gospel to them. So let me encourage you, brethren. There is a reason this is called a war. I don't, that's biblical language. There's a reason it's called a war and it's because it's not easy. But we can't escape it. If you're born again, you have been enlisted into this war. So as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, keep taking forth the Gospel message. Calling on people to believe with their heart and confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus. For He is worthy of all of our praise. Amen.